Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's remind ourselves that we are once again in the presence of God, and let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you again also for inviting us back here to St. Thomas of Becket. I'm Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo. I'm the founding director of the Institute. Just to contextualize our talk for a moment this evening, we had finished up with Noah's flood. Of course, you know the story from Adam and Eve through Cain and Abel. Cain killed Seth, or Cain killed Abel, and God gave to Adam and Eve a third son named Seth. And Seth's great, 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 great grandson was none other than Noah. And Noah's great, 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 great grandson the next major figure you need to know in this story of salvation history is? Good, Abraham. And Abraham's son? Isaac. And Isaac's son? Jacob. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. And they sold Joseph into slavery. And just oftentimes our sins do follow us, unfortunately. And just as they sold their brothers into slavery, they themselves ended up in slavery in Egypt. But God chose one man a descendant of the son of Levi, uh, to lead them out. And his name was? Moses. Good. By the way, how many Catholics have their Bibles with them tonight? See that? Don't ever tell me, uh, when I was a kid, uh, they told us we weren't allowed to read our Bible. Let me tell you, none of us are kids anymore. It's time we take stock in our faith and we start reading the Bible again. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Okay, Moses' his brother was? Aaron, and they crossed to Mount Sinai and from Mount Sinai to the Holy Land. And following Moses' leadership, who took over? Joshua. Very good. And they entered in the Holy Land. They took the Holy Land. And following Joshua's death, God instituted the time of the judges. And in chapter 2, verse 6, we read, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And I'll skip down a few verses. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. There arose another generation did not know the Lord. Whose fault was it that that next generation did not know the Lord? The prior generation. Thank you very much. And I think that is very applicable today. We look around and we say, what's wrong with our kids? And I say, wait, first of all, what's wrong with us? Because the kids receive what we give them. And it's time that we start being formed in the faith so that we can hand on that which has been handed on to us. Okay? For those watching online, I encourage you, tell your friends about the Institute of Catholic Culture because you're going to receive an education here which is bar none. It's the best. I encourage you to tell those people that are out there. As I said, there was 100 people watching online at the last talk. There's been more than that from all over the United States and beyond. And we want to encourage that because where there's one person, there can be 100 people around them in their cities, uh, in their counties, in their states, so that the Institute of Catholic Culture and the valuable knowledge, not because the Institute is the answer to every problem in the Catholic Church. No, I don't have any ideas like that. But I'll tell you what is the problem, is that people don't know the faith. And the Institute of Catholic Culture is dedicated to bringing that knowledge to them. So, with that said, I want to introduce to you this evening an assistant professor of theology at Christendom College, where he teaches courses in sacred scripture, revelation, and Christology. 
He will defend his doctoral thesis concerning biblical interpretation at the Catholic University of America this spring. Professor Janislawski has earned degrees in philosophy and theology at Yale College and Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut. He resides with his wife and three children in Paradise, Front Royal, Virginia. Please welcome back Eric Janislawski. <laughs> the promised land. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I think you also stole a few of my papers, Deacon Carnazzo. <laughs> he didn't hear. I think he has half of my notes with him. <laughs> That's okay. You know um, <laughs> I can I can wing it. I can wing it. That's fine. That'd be a good test. You just put everybody else through a test. So right there. Yeah, I think that's about it. Okay. That should do. Okay, good. Um, yeah, it's very nice to be back amongst you. Thank you for inviting me back. My job here this evening and next Sunday is going to be to take you through a number of texts from the Minor Prophets, which are not the most read texts in the Bible. Somebody uh, told me that they hadn't ever really been to any kind of talk or lecture on the Minor Prophets over the cookies just a few minutes ago. And so uh, I realize this may not be the most familiar material, yet there are uh, many wonderful things told to us about the advent of the Lord in the Minor Prophets. Now, I wanted to start this evening with two of the more difficult texts and the more involved texts. There's a number of prophecies in Zechariah, and there are, uh, there's a famous statement in Hosea that I'd like to focus on because these require the most contextualization, the most background. Then the next time, we'll do some of the shorter and sweeter texts, uh, texts from Malachi, texts from Micah, and we will get into uh, some of the things pertaining to the nativity of our Lord in those passages as well. But tonight, I wanted to start with Zechariah and then also with the prophet Hosea. Does that make sense? In terms of our game plan? Okay. First difficulty is that we're interpreting prophecy. And that is something that calls for a little bit more engagement than, say, reading historical books or some of the more straightforward literature of the Bible. Prophecy can be difficult. So just some general norms for interpretation that I wanted to sketch out for everyone to make sure we're on the same page. Uh, one reason why it can be difficult is because it involves veiled language. It's often symbolic. Sometimes prophecies come to us in the form of visions or dreams or divine oracles, sayings that are delivered to the prophet. The prophet himself may not have been fully in possession of the full meaning of the prophecy either. Sometimes these things are given to the prophet and the fuller understanding of them only comes later in salvation history. So prophecies can be fragmentary. They can be only complete sometimes in our understanding of them in light of their fulfillment in Christ. St. Paul in the letter to the Hebrews has a wonderful statement that epitomizes this fulfillment of prophecy in Christ in the very beginning of that book. Hebrews 1.1, maybe you know this famous passage. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It's St. Paul that will teach us about the fulfillment, the recapitulation of everything in Christ. And that's also true of our perspective on prophecy, is that sometimes in possession of the full mystery, we can get a better purchase on what it meant when it was given in the Old Testament in a veiled and fragmentary form. Does that make sense? These things are sometimes clearer in retrospect. Prophecy can be further difficult because of the different historical context that we occupy compared to the prophet. So, for example, the prophet was steeped in the history of the people of Israel. We may not be so steeped in the history of the people of Israel, so that might require a little bit of filling in of the background. Uh, the prophet also had in mind the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, which we also may not be so versed in compared to the people who were living and breathing this stuff at the time of the writing. So we have to fill in some missing context. And that'll be part of our job here this evening. I'm glad Sabatino gave you a pop quiz in some of the salvation history. We're going to have to go a little bit further in that history to get into what's going on in Zechariah and Hosea. But nonetheless, it's a good start. Is that okay with general norms? We have to fill in some context. Now, of prophecies that deal with Christ, since that's our topic for this talk and the next one, uh, some we understand as having direct reference to Christ. 
that they are only intelligible as being fulfilled in Christ. So, for example, uh, Isaiah 7.14, perhaps the most famous of the prophecies pertaining to our Lord, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In the Christian tradition, we don't really understand that as applying to anything but the miraculous conception of our Lord in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Other messianic prophecies, a little bit different. Uh, Sometimes they have a dual reference. And let me explain that a little bit. An event close to the prophet's own day, and then a second meeting further off, more spiritual, more distant, fulfilled in Christ. So sometimes these messianic prophecies have sort of two stages of meaning, two stages of fulfillment. The prophets like to use symbolism a lot to do this. Prophets often make use of natural symbolism, things like a flood or a storm. They can also use symbolism drawn from the everyday world that surrounds them, So, for example, sowing a field or building a house, you're probably familiar with those symbols from language of parable and prophecy. But likewise, they can also use images from history. And so, oftentimes, this image becomes a springboard for something deeper, a springboard for prophetical reflection to go from something near in time to the prophet to something more distant, something more spiritual, something ultimately we're going to see as fulfilled in Christ. So two different historical events, one proximate, one further away in time, can sometimes become linked through one historical image. Maybe an analogy to make this make sense. Uh, You're probably familiar with this little device from television shows. Uh, Something happens in a sitcom or whatever, Somebody says something or an event takes place that reminds the main character of something that happened in the past and all of a sudden the screen goes all wavy and the xylophone or the chimes start to play and you have a little bit of dissolve and a flashback. You ever see that like visual device in a television show? Something happens that triggers the memory of the main character and then all of a sudden there's this fade and then you get the remembered event triggered by some image in the present. Is that familiar in terms of just a basic thing? Now, that's a remembrance, right? That is an event in the present triggering a retrieval of a series of events or a happening or something significant in the past. That's a remembrance. In prophecy, we're moving in the opposite direction. We have, instead of a remembrance, a prophetical anticipation. Sometimes an event proximate to the prophet's own time can be the springboard, can be the trigger, can be the dissolve, as it were, for the prophet's vision into the future. And so we have an anticipation here. And the anticipatory character of the prophetical word is, of course, only possible because it is divinely inspired. Right? The prophet is able to know what he knows about the future because he participates in a partial way in God's knowledge of the future that is to come. Does that make sense in terms of a general framework? Okay, I don't want to get too theoretical, but at the same time, it's important that we do this so that we can respect the text. Sometimes we describe this image-driven anticipation as foreshadowing. I don't know how much theory of interpretation you guys do, uh, but foreshadowing is perhaps a more familiar language to you guys, probably from the Pauline letters. And it's a funny image, because normally one sees the thing itself first and then pays attention to the shadow. Yes? But imagine this, if the thing is large, very prominent, I guess something like that pillar over there, Uh, and the sun is yet more distant, one sees the shadow first, and then one raises one's eye to see that amazing thing that is distant, but projecting its shadow even close to you. That's the typical biblical language for how this thing that sometimes in the Catholic tradition we call allegory works. Are you familiar with the term allegory? comes to us from Paul's letters as well, and an allegory is when one historical event prefigures another for which it prepares. And so that's what we're really putting our finger on with some of these prophecies. There will be one historical event, genuine historical event, that has a meaning in its own right, but this historical event will be a springboard, an image, the beginning of a prophetical anticipation of another one, a more important one, for which it prepares in the future. So we're going to be dealing with the allegorical sense of some of these texts, and I wanted to mention that for two reasons. One, it allows us to respect and to make intelligent sense of the literal sense of the text. 
Right? All of these prophecies had a certain meaning when they were originally delivered. They weren't so cryptic that they didn't make sense until the New Testament. And we want to pay attention to historical context. I know Deacon Carnazzo likes to hammer on context, context, context. And one of the first things to be a responsible interpreter of the Old Testament in a Christian light is to be able to respect the historical context of these prophecies. We don't want to be guilty of just running roughshod over it and saying the only thing it means is its fulfillment. That would be doing the Old Testament text a bit of a disservice. And so it allows us to describe how these things are fulfilled in Christ, but this is not just a Christian remodeling of the text or an appropriation of a Jewish text for Christian purposes or a foreign imposition on the Old Testament. That's the kind of dualist perspective we want to avoid. I know sometimes, in some places, seminarians are taught not to talk about prefiguration and allegory because that's anti-Semitic. Now, first you have to pause a minute and say, well, how does that make sense? <laughs> what's, what's meant there? It's because those people that are teaching them have been themselves taught that to treat an Old Testament text as if it had a Christian prefiguration is to throw away the whole worth of the history of Israel and just focus on the Christian stuff. We're going to get the Christian stuff out of it like we get the kernel out of a husk and throw the rest away. That is absolutely not the Catholic tradition's understanding of the allegorical significance of prophecy. It respects both the historical and the prefigurative aspects. And so that's why I want to start out that way. These things have a history, we have to understand the history, and then they have a second stage fulfillment in Christ that is even richer, even grander, is the prefiguration is just a foretaste, as Paul says, of the promise of good things that are to come. That's Hebrews 10.1. The law, he says, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So the law is just a shadow, and then the reality that is Christ is the even better thing that is to come. So, I wanted to start out with that perspective. Uh, the Jews themselves saw their history as having a goal, having an end, building up to something. And as one interpreter once said, that means that these things, these historical events, are never used up, but their very fulfillment gives rise, all unexpected, to the promise of yet greater things. Here, nothing carries ultimate meaning in itself, but is ever yet the earnest of greater wonders. That's Gerhard von Rod. Probably surprised some of you since he's a leading historical critic. But even he gets this notion of Jewish history having an end that is beyond itself. So with that little intro, I wanted to turn to Zechariah and get into the first set of prophecies that come to us from Zechariah. First one's Zechariah 3. It's a pity we won't have a chance to do the entire book uh, this evening because it's a rich, rich book. It's one Zechariah and Isaiah are two of my favorites. But the first prophecy we'll take a look at is Zechariah 3, often called the Joshua prophecy. Now, Sabatino took you through a little bit of Jewish history, but can you go further than the reign of David and Solomon? <laughs> what happens about, oh, I don't know, 200 years after the division of the kingdom into north and south? Does anybody know? You know, after David and Solomon, the kingdom splits into the kingdom of the north, called the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of the south, called the kingdom of Judah. Have you guys done a little bit of... Very good, very good. So 721... The Assyrians uh, come and lay waste to the northern kingdom, carrying them off uh, into exile, and those become what are called sometimes the ten lost tribes of Israel, because they're deported into the interior of Assyria, and they're mixed in with the Gentile population, and that whole chunk of Israelites uh, is assimilated, which is sort of your least happy outcome for Jewish identity. Uh, then what happens a little bit later just to get the full picture on there, the southern kingdom remains intact after 721. They get about another 150 years of sovereign survival in the southern kingdom, Judah, until what happens? So the Babylonian captivity, very good. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and take the Jews of the southern kingdom into captivity. And is that the end of them like it was with Assyria? No, because it's only called the captivity. <laughs> that implies a certain temporary status. What happens after that? Okay, so when the Persian Empire overtook the Babylonians, Cyrus the Persian, uh, in his famous edict in the 530s, allows the Jews to settle back 
into the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, that's why Jews are called Jews, because they come from Judah. After that, the only Jews that are left remaining in the land are from Judah. And so uh, this is a time of great promise, but also great peril for Judaism. After having been uh, northern kingdom destroyed, southern kingdom taken off into captivity, now they're coming back and they're trying to restore life in Israel. And then what is the capital tragedy in the midst of the besieging of Jerusalem that led to their captivity? What, what have they lost? That's the temple. Yeah, so the temple has been destroyed. The first temple, Solomon's temple, has been destroyed. And so what's one of their key priorities? Having resettled in the land, what do they want to do? Rebuild the temple. Yes. Uh, so that gives us a little bit of background for Zechariah. Zechariah 3, we're dealing with a bunch of prophecies set in the time of the restoration of the temple, the building of the second temple, the resettling of the promised land. So it's a time of great promise, but also great peril. And in the midst of this, the prophets are sent to Israel to give them hope. Right? They're often sent to judge Israel, but they always judge in a way that points forward to the hope that God wants them to have, that they might take up to the full their dignity as the people of God. So take a look at Zechariah 3, and we'll get into that. Zechariah writes, Then he, meaning the Lord, showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich apparel. And I said, Let them put a clean turban also on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord enjoined Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access amongst those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men of good omen. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, upon the stone which I have set before Joshua, upon a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So that's chapter 3. Now it's a significant and rich prophecy. First, on the historical level, Joshua is the son of the high priest who came back from captivity. He is preparing to take up his office as high priest of Israel. And so on the historical level, this is a favorable prophecy, buoying up hope that the high priesthood will resume its function and stand once again in favor before God. Because the Jews understand their captivity as a punishment, right? As a punishment for their iniquity, they are taken away from the promised land and then brought to a place where they are ruled over by Gentiles and they are bereft of the conduct of their sacrificial religion. And so at this moment, when they are trying to restore things, it's a moment of great hope for the return of favor upon the people of Israel as mediated through Joshua, the priest, being restored to his office. Does that make sense? Now, at the same time, with that historical context in mind, this prophecy, because of a verse that we're going to focus on in a little bit more detail about the coming of the branch, was seen in a messianic context, even within Judaism. And just to get you some connections with that, are you familiar with the branch imagery? Is that new to you? It's an obscure title, except we hear it in Christmas time. Maybe the uh, Jesse tree? This will be a little bit of a survey, I guess, because I, I tried this with my students, but they're all... 18 to 22, and there are very few people. One British fellow did this, but does anyone have a Jesse tree in their home for Christmas time? We used to. What is a Jesse tree? From Jesse That's right, that's right. It's the family tree. Now, Jesse is the father of... David is the founder of the monarchical line, and because of 2 Samuel 7, God promises 
that the monarchical line will never pass from the house of David. This is the kingly line within Israel. Are you familiar with that? And so the Jesse tree is a genealogical tree, oftentimes done in very elaborate graphics. Sometimes it's uh, got wavy, all kinds of branches, but it's a genealogy from Jesse to Christ. And because of these prophecies that we'll see in the Old Testament called branch prophecies, this becomes a title for the Messiah, the Messiah as the branch. Now, maybe the more familiar ones come to you from Isaiah. I don't know if you're familiar with, with Isaiah's prophecies. How about Isaiah 11? Because I'm going to just try to figure out what we need to fill in as we go here. This just, I think, may have gone by in the lectionary cycle or else it's coming up. There'll be tons of Isaiah in the lectionary. Isaiah 11 is your classic branch prophecy in the book of Isaiah. This is 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so from the humiliated monarchical house, that's the image, right? Just like that terrible storm snapped all the branches off the trees here and bowed them down to the ground, so too the monarchical house of Israel is in a humble state. But there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and fortitude, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What are all those gifts? Those ring a bell? Gifts of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's an Old Testament foundational text for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So will be fully imbued with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then he shall judge the earth with justice and with righteousness, even the poor and the meek. And then a Christmas card image that gets painted again and again. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. Uh, this Genesis image that Isaiah loves to surround the Messiah with. He does this several times in his book. The idea that when the Messiah comes, this branch from the tree of Jesse, he will restore man to a state of friendship with God that is like that which once obtained in the garden. That's why he loves to use these Genesis images throughout the book of Isaiah. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. Him shall the nation seek, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Well, what is an ensign but something that's hoisted up on high? Think of like a battlefield insignia that people might be drawn to it. And so, too, there's this image that permeates Isaiah. He'll do it again, the suffering servant. Suffering servant being lifted up like a ritual offering, and he will draw all men to himself. Or you think of Jesus in John's Gospel, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That's the image of the shoot of Jesse in Isaiah but it's described as a shoot or a root, netzar in Hebrew, and we'll see this image of the branch sprung forth from the tree of Jesse used in Isaiah several times, used in Jeremiah, and here indeed in the heart of Zechariah. So if you're not familiar with those branch texts, uh, I can share them with you. Isaiah 4.2 is another one. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. We'll tie that maybe together with John the Baptist if we have time. Then Jeremiah uh, 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And again in Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So is that a good enough example of branch images? We've got them in Jeremiah, we've got them in Isaiah, and then we've got it right here in Zechariah. So let's look back at the text of Zechariah now with a little bit of context. We're looking at one historical event the restoration of the high priest to his office, and we're also looking ahead 
to another event, an even more momentous historical event, which is the coming of Joshua, our great high priest. Now you know who that is, yes? Our Lord's own name is the same name as what's typically translated elsewhere as Joshua. We usually uh, take our Lord's name through the Greek, and then when they do it directly in English, they'll do it as Joshua. But they all mean the same fundamental underlying Hebrew word. So we're looking at Joshua, the historical high priest, and we're looking ahead to Jesus, our great high priest. Does that make sense? Okay, now let's, with that background, look at the particulars of the text again. What's the first thing that we see with Joshua? What's he doing in this prophecy? We don't meet him in the happiest of circumstances. He's got dirty clothes. There's, there's the soul of a mother. Who led him there with the dirty clothes? But what else? What else is, even before we get to the dirty clothes? He's, Satan is at his right hand. This is juridical language. In, in Israel, when you had an accuser in a courtroom trial a situation, he was the person that stood at your right hand to make accusation for you. So we have this image of Joshua undergoing a certain kind of temptation or trial from Satan. But in the midst of that, uh, he doesn't succumb. He is not judged adversely. Rather, Satan is dismissed. God says, get out of here. Isn't this a brand plucked from the fire? Away with you, Satan. And so while he is accused and tried by Satan, he's in no way judged wicked, but rather just the opposite. He's seen there clothed with filthy garments. Now, what are those representative of? of yeah, of, of iniquity, of sin. Now, remember, it was the high priest's job to mediate between the people of Israel and God. Right? That's the twofold nature of the priestly office to call down blessings from God to the people, and also to mediate between the people and restore them in right favor before God. It's a two-way street. And so the high priest would oftentimes appear before God, bearing the sins of the people of Israel to make atonement for them. And so we see this image of Joshua. Think of this, coming back to his priestly office. The whole captivity understood as a punishment for God's sin, undergoing these trials and temptations at the hand of Satan, and then having successfully endured those, the filthy garments are removed, and he's clad in clean garments, symbolic of his having undergone trial, and having undergone that trial successfully, achieving atonement for his people. And we're even sort of reinforced in that, the guilt of the land will be removed in a single day. Does that make sense of the image that we have here? So on the historical level, it points to Joshua taking up again his priestly office in dignity, in purity, in Levitical right standing. But it points forward also to Jesus, our great high priest, who will literally take upon himself the sins of all of us. And having undergone his own temptation at the hands of Satan, before God being judged innocent and worthy, and then, because of that, removing the guilt of the land in a single day, and what else? What else is his privilege in 3.6? The angel of the Lord enjoined Joshua, thus says the Lord, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you right of access amongst those who are standing here. Again, historically symbolic of Joshua and his compatriot priest being able to enter the sanctuary again in purity, but thinking allegorically, symbolic of what does Paul say about Jesus in the epistle to the Hebrews? He's the great high priest, and what does he do? He takes away the sins of the world, but then how is that described? He passes into not the earthly sanctuary, but having passed through the veil of the flesh, enters into the sanctuary not made with human hands, and stands before God forever to make intercession for his people. Familiar with that image from the epistle to the Hebrews? And this is why it's the epistle to the Hebrews. If you want to see the mission of Christ cashed out in Jewish priestly terms, that's the place to go. Uh, maybe Hebrews 7 through 10, if you're looking for a little bit of additional correlation here, is reading that you could do on your own, but we'll give you this image of Christ our great high priest. Here, it's Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who were sanctified. And the Holy Spirit is witness to this, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and misdeeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these sins, no longer is there any offering for sin. And then it goes on to talk about Jesus passing through the veil and standing before the eternal sanctuary. So if we look at that as emblematic of what Christ does, we have a twofold fulfillment. First, Joshua gaining right standing before God as a priest, and that being a symbol of Christ, our coming great high priest. We're good with that? And then, just to follow that up, to make sure that we have a glimpse of what's coming, and that we don't remain merely on the historical level, the text itself says to Joshua, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Does that make sense to how intrinsic to the prophecy itself, in the literal sense, he says, all this that I've been doing for you right now, restoring you to your priestly office, is yet a setup for what I will do in the future, which is to bring my servant the branch. And then in those four passages we just read, two from Isaiah, two from Jeremiah, we see that the branch's mission or office is to come and execute justice and righteousness The Lord is our righteousness, is his name, that will be fully endowed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and come and draw all peoples to himself. So do you see how we get that image springing from the historical one and going to the fulfillment? So that's part of the office of the Messiah. Yes, 2 Samuel 7, unlimited in his temporal reign. He will reign over the house of Israel forever. Or Genesis 49.10. Are you familiar with that prophecy? When Jacob blesses his 12 sons, he has a blessing for each of them, but the blessing is on each of them also a prediction, a prophecy of what will happen in that tribe. And so when he passes over the first three, because of their shenanigans, they don't get the dignity of the best blessing. The eldest three sons are not the favored sons, but when he gets to Judah, fourth in line, then he gives that beautiful prophecy, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of all the nations. That's Genesis 49.10. And so there you have a statement of the unlimited domain of the Messiah, right? Because the house of David is sprung from the tribe of Judah, and part of what the Messiah will do is to reign over all the nations. And he will also reign forever, unlimited in space, unlimited in time. That's the foundation for the Catholicity of the Church, is it not? If you're looking for an image of the Catholicity of the Church in the Old Testament, it's that. It's that when the Messiah comes, when he's lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, and he will rule over them forever. And so we get this image of the Messiah built up from the branch prophecies. That's a key to unlock what we're being shown here symbolically in Zechariah 3. We good? Now, flip to Zechariah 9. This is perhaps the one that people are most familiar with because of its prominent place in the Passion Narrative. Zechariah 9.9, that's the pull quote on the poster uh, that Deacon Carnazzo chose. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding upon an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall command peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will brandish your sons, O Zion, over your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And so that's an interesting prophecy. Again, looking forward to the coming of the king of the Jews, right? Because who comes to Jerusalem riding triumphantly? This is a symbol of the king of the Jews. But he's riding on a donkey, yes? Now, why a donkey? Right, so it's ultimately something that's going to be pointing forward to what happens on Palm Sunday. Our Lord does come into Jerusalem explicitly in that fashion, and all four evangelists note this prophecy fulfillment. But in the text of the prophecy itself, just to look at what's going on at the historical level, it's a little bit of a contrast, yes? He comes to you triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on an ass. 
and then a little bit later, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Israel was a little bit slow to adopt the use of uh, fine Persian stallions. In fact, Solomon was the first one to perfect the use of horse and chariot in the army. His father David fought like a traditional Israelite on foot in the high places. And so a donkey is a more humble beast than a horse, yes? And it's a symbol of the Messiah's gentleness or humility, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. But a donkey is also the traditional ride of the king of Israel. Perhaps you know uh, we tend to go old school with our vehicles at occasions of great import. Yes, uh, while the Queen of England could get whatever latest Mercedes she wants or fine Rolls Royce, when they have a coronation, they bring out some clunky chariot horse-drawn. Yes, or sometimes people do this with the wedding. We're not going to use a new car, we're going to use an old car, we're going to get a horse and buggy to draw us along. When the kings of Israel were coronated, they used a donkey. Even though they had finer horses around, they rode into town on a donkey. And if you want to see an image of this as an uh, older beast used for those that were of high station, Judges 5.2 and Judges 10.4 show us first the judges riding around on donkeys as symbols of their status. And then if you look at Solomon's coronation account in 1 Kings 1.1, he goes out of town after David says, we're going to coronate him before I die to head off any succession controversy. He said, bring him outside, bring him to the spring of Gion, anoint his head with oil, and then have him ride in on my donkey. And so this is a symbol of how the king of Israel would come to Jerusalem striking an ancient and monarchical pose. But it's also one that indicates his humility. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the triumphant entrance, he's coming in the form of a Hebrew king. And he's also coming in fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. We good so far? Okay. We know Messiah is called Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9.6. Yes? That's one of the, his four names. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. So to hear, he will command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. There again is the unlimited domain of the Messiah over all the Gentile nations. That was itself prefigured in David. David was an imperial king. Yes, David ruled over all 12 tribes of Jews in one kingdom, but also over Moab and Edom and some of the surrounding Gentile nations. And the Jews saw in David's imperial kingship over all the Jews and Gentiles in one kingdom, not all the Gentiles, but at least some of them, as a prefiguration of the Messiah coming someday and ruling over a kingdom that stretched from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now what about 11, 9-11? As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. Deacon Carnazzo mentioned Joseph being sold into slavery. Yes? Where did they put him? They put him in a waterless pit. Uh, Joseph's slavery, they used wells like that, dry wells. They were uh, more like cisterns. Because a well you dig deep enough and you get groundwater, that's a well. Right? A waterless pit is just the opposite. You dig deep enough, you get nothing. Well, that's a nice place to stash food or prisoners. <laughs> and so this is an image of when this king comes, he will release prisoners from this place of their rather humble incarceration. And then same thing too. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I'll restore to you double. When we look at how our Lord describes his mission in the Gospels, it's a fascinating theme that you can trace out, one of liberation and release, one of setting captives free. In fact, uh, that passage that's now our fourth luminous mystery, when he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, yes, in Luke 4, and he picks up the text of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty to captives, and to restore the sight to the blind. Isaiah loves these images of proclaiming liberty to captives, restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, people that are crippled or maimed, healed. Our Lord seizes on all of this as a way to describe his mission of liberation from sin, death, and the devil. Our Lord takes physical images of captivity, privation, imprisonment, suffering, and uses this as an image for his more cosmic mission of release, releasing mankind from its ultimate bondage to sin, death, and the devil. 
So when you see this release imagery, that's what it's pointing to here. Not simply getting people out of a jam, being caught in a waterless pit, that's a nice convenient prison cell in the Old Testament, but rather releasing them from a captivity that's bigger than that. Today I will restore to you double. The double is going to be hard to decode just on the basis of Zechariah 9.12. You have to go to Isaiah for this one again. You've got to use scripture to interpret scripture. Do you know this uh, Isaiah 40? It's very prominent this time of year. This is sometimes called the book of consolation. Why? Because Isaiah directs it at those who are coming back from the Babylonian captivity to console them. And Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah has there an image of paving the way. Yeah, 66 is almost constantly under construction. I don't know who's coming, but he must be a great potentate, because they're constantly widening that road. Um, but he has this image of... The Babylonian captives are going to come back from exile, so straighten the way in the desert. Make a highway ready for them, because God is going to restore them. That's the consolation that Isaiah is proclaiming in, in chapter 40, verse 1. But he says, tell Jerusalem, that's in exile, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Measure for measure would be justice. Yes? Let the punishment fit the crime. But Isaiah says here, this extended captivity... Israel receives a twofold measure of suffering. There's three rationales for suffering in the Old Testament. One, a consequence of sin. It's punishment. Two, suffering as a test. So you can show forth your strength of character and your fidelity and your faith in God. Think of Abraham's test or Job. But Isaiah gives us here a new theology of suffering in the Old Testament. That suffering voluntarily undergone in a spirit of penitence can be like an offering before God can be like a prayer, can be something that's redemptive, that can call down graces from heaven. And that's how he frames Israel's extended suffering in captivity. Yes, one measure because of their sins, but another measure because God is preparing them to do something tremendous, which is to become a light to the nations. They will be the means through which ultimately the Messiah will come and pour forth untold graces to humanity. And so that's part of what's going on in the double. Does that make sense? And so, flip back to Zechariah. When the Messiah comes, he will come in the manner of an ancient Jewish king. He will come to Jerusalem. He will come not full of might and with war instruments and glory, but rather humbly. And then he shall come in order to release people from their bondage, from their servitude. He will come to proclaim an era of peace, and he will come to make good on all of those prayers and offerings and sufferings that Israel has done in anticipation of it someday becoming a light to the nations. But that doesn't end there. Zechariah 11 takes up the image of the good shepherd. And I maintain to you that if you read the Gospels carefully and look at all the allusions to Zechariah, you can find a map from Zechariah 9.9 in the triumphant entrance all the way through to Pentecost, key to the book of Zechariah and the references made to it. You probably know that our Lord calls himself the Good Shepherd. And shepherding was an ancient vocation in Israel and a laudable one. In fact, uh, in the Pentateuch, God shows what you might call a preferential option for shepherds. Yes? Seth was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Amos was a shepherd. And shepherding was already a symbol for the leader of Israel. Why shepherd? <laughs> yeah, lamb, lambs aren't the brightest creatures. And they're not as docile as you might think, you know? They're, they're not always the pleasant little bouncy, fluffy things that are made of cotton that do whatever you tell. So yeah, they're, they're stubborn creatures too. Uh, but the shepherd, Israel has a big government problem, right? There, there might be a nice contemporary political message there, but we won't extrapolate it. Uh, having been enslaved in Egypt, having been captive in Babylon... Israel understood what it was like to be under the dictatorial 
heel of some pagan potentate, where the people were simply his property, his possession. How do you show your splendor in Egypt and in Babylon? Well, you enslave a whole bunch of people and they're building enormous pyramids or public work projects. They are all part of your statist implementation of your great regime. And Israel saw that slavery, that servitude to a pagan generation, a pagan king, as something fundamentally opposite than what God wanted for them. And so when they conceived of their ruler, they conceived of their ruler using the analogy of a shepherd. Because a shepherd tended a flock that was not his own. A shepherd was a steward. A shepherd was always responsible to somebody else, in this case God, for how he tended the flock. Does that make sense? Shepherding is a political metaphor that always reminds the ruler that the people aren't his pawns, but rather that he has to take care of them and nurture them and look for their good in all things and to bring back to God a healthy, well-tended flock. And so shepherding is already a metaphor for leadership in Israel. And then when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for my sheep, he's not simply referring to the generic image of the king as shepherd, but to the good shepherd prophecy in Zechariah. So turn to Zechariah 11, starting in verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. So that's not a good economy for the sheep, yes? The people that buy them slay them and the people that get rid of them say, great, I just profited from that exchange. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. So this is not a good image of what the shepherd should be doing. Yes? For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, says the Lord. Lo, I will cause men to fall, each into the hand of his shepherd, and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the earth, and I will deliver none from their hand. So the state of Israel, as the prophet depicts it, when he is told by God, now go and become a shepherd over the flock doomed to slaughter, is that the people are not being well taken care of by their leaders. Their leaders are exploiting them. The leaders are letting them become a flock that is simply trafficked rather than cared for. And Zechariah is told by God, become shepherd over this flock. So in 11.7, So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slain for those who trafficked in sheep. And I took two staffs. One I named Grace, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those that are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, Grace, and I broke it, annulling the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the traffickers and sheep who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty shekels of silver. Then the, oh, everybody got that one. There is no problem there. Then the Lord said to me, Cast it into the temple treasury, the lordly price at which I was paid off by them. So I took thirty shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so you can see in that image, God calls Zechariah in a symbolic action. The prophets were oftentimes called to perform actions which were sort of like enacted prophecies, not simply spoken prophecies, but prophecies done in symbolism. It says, go and become a shepherd of a flock that's being trafficked, that's being abused by its rulers. Then there's a contention between the good shepherd on the one hand and the wicked shepherds that are abusing the flock. And while he has leadership of them for a while, even the sheep begin to detest him. And so the shepherd says, fine, if it seems fit to you, give me my wages. And the wages that they give to the good shepherd is an insulting price. 30 shekels is not a lot for the shepherd's entire work of tending the flock. And it's a symbolical price. Now, you all got the connection to the gospel. But 30 shekels of silver in the law, you know, the law had monetary fines for all kinds of misbehaviors, was the ransom price of a gored slave. If you had an ox, and your ox gored somebody's slave, pay him 30 shekels and you're even. If it gored a freeborn man or somebody else, then you had more serious business to attend to. 
uh, that was manslaughter and had to be treated more seriously. But if your ox gored a slave, you would buy off that for 30 shekels of silver. And so it's an insulting response. The good shepherd says, give me my wages if it seems fit to you. And what do they give him? The price of somebody who is the lowest of the low. A slave to be pierced in the side, gored, and disposed of. So if you think about that as the symbolic price for which Christ is sold, what is going to happen to him? For his shepherding of the flock, for his contending with people, right, like wicked Herod and the Pharisees who have been misguiding the Jews, uh, he is despised by the bad shepherds, and even some of the sheep despise him, and they sell him off for 30 pieces of silver, which is thrown into the temple treasury. And then even the price, proleptic of, anticipatory of, his being pierced in the side. Now, in Zechariah 12, you go back to kingly images. So we started in Zechariah 9 with a king. Then we switch to Zechariah 11, which was talking about shepherds, the good shepherd. Then in 12, we go back to kings. Now, if you know the shepherd symbolism, we haven't changed focus at all. Because one is simply a symbol for the other. Yes? So take a look at uh, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David... So what's that? The monarchical house. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look upon him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning of Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, each family by itself, and the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. Etc. Now, what's going on there? We're just told that the good shepherd was sold for the ransom price of a gourd slave. Then we're told a verse that St. John observes in connection with our Lord's suffering on the cross. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And then they will mourn for him as for an only child, such as our Lord. Yes. Then they will mourn for him as for obscure Old Testament reference. What the heck is... The mourning for Hadad Rimon on the plain of Megiddo. What is that? <laughs> That's describing Israel's mourning for King Josiah, righteous King Josiah, who was a young king and began to bring about a religious reform in Israel. And in his 30s, in a battle, he was cut down, and the people mourned that such a holy and righteous king in their midst would have been killed in the prime of his life. So again, if you're thinking about the fulfillment of this in Christ, pierced in the side, the good shepherd sold off by those who resented him. He will be mourned like an only son, and he will be mourned like a holy king cut down in the prime of his life. And then after the period of mourning, what do we read in 13.1? On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And so after all of this has happened, then there will be a fountain opened in Jerusalem to cleanse them of their sin. All the way from Zechariah 3, we saw how the mission of Joshua, our high priest, is to cleanse the people from the sin, remove the guilt of the land in a single day. Yes? And we understand that in the Catholic faith as having happened with the atoning sacrifice of Christ on Good Friday. Having been tempted and tried by Satan, he has emerged innocent and victorious. Having offered the sacrifice of his body, blood, soul, and divinity, he has atoned for all mankind's sin. And by virtue of that, he pays the ransom price that is necessary for setting all of us free. But because Christ died on the cross, does that mean all of us automatically are saved? 1 John 2.2 says, His death is sufficient for our sins and the sins of the whole world. But yet, that doesn't mean that everybody automatically is translated into the category of saved. What do you need to be cleansed of your sins? Baptism. baptism. And where do we see the waters of baptism going forth to begin to incorporate people into the church? Yeah, the fountain in Zechariah 13.1. And when do we see that historically unfolding? And when, when is that first administered to people? Pentecost, yes? That first Pentecost, where Peter does what? Preaches 
this amazing sermon about how Jesus is the long-promised Messiah of the house of David, and then comes around with this hook, let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that this Jesus is Lord and Christ whom you crucified. And then Israel says, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent all of you and be baptized for the promises to you and to your children and all those that are far off. And about 3,000 were added that day. And so if you look at Zechariah 9.9 from the triumphant entrance through to the selling of Christ, to the humiliation of Christ, to the piercing of Christ, and then finally to the repentance for the death of Christ, leading people to the waters of baptism, you can map that all the way through the passion narrative, even to Acts 1. Does that make sense in terms of an allegorical reading of the prophecy of Zechariah? Okay. Now, I think Sabatino gave me the five-minute warning. So what we're going to do for next time is we can do this quickly. If you got the captivity, don't forget about that. Because when we look at the verse of Hosea, there's a couple of real mysteries where Matthew is citing texts that might initially seem rather baffling. The first one is, He shall be called a Nazarene, Matthew 2.23. And then the other one is, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Remember that one? After the flight into Egypt, Matthew says, This is to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. We're going to have to put together the big picture of how the Gospels interpret the captivity in order to get what's going on in that text. So we'll do Hosea 11.1, we'll do Micah, his origins will be from of old, of ancient of days, he'll be born in Bethlehem, and we'll do Malachi, all about the coming of John the Baptist, the precursor of the Messiah. Is that good? Okay, so Zechariah is the densest thing. I hope that wasn't too dense, because it's, it's, a, it's a historically very contexted set of prophecies that we have to get into. Okay, very thank, good. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much. As usual, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break. I'm going to come back together for some Q&A. This is a very short question, but why did King Josiah have a different name that you read in Zechariah? Why was it a separate The short answer is that sometimes the kings have what's called a throne name, just like the Pope adopts sort of a different name when he becomes pontiff. Sometimes the king has a throne name. Other times, they simply bear two different names. Uh, with all these prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ, did the Jews not realize it or recognize them, that they rejected Christ when he came? My favorite answer to this one involves a jigsaw puzzle. Typically, when one constructs a jigsaw puzzle, you look at the picture in the front of the box. Yes? And that guides the coming together of all the individual pieces. But the pros out there, those the real jigsaw puzzle people, get the jigsaw puzzle in the plain brown box with no image. Yes? You have to figure it out by putting it together. My metaphor for the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament versus the Christian one goes kind of like this. You're putting together the jigsaw puzzle. Individual prophecies, individual statements about the Messiah, individual facts, have to all be pieced together into one comprehensive portrait. And that's difficult to do. Each piece is beautiful, but you don't necessarily see how it fits together in a whole until you see the big image. As Christians, we possess the picture on the front of the box. We're able to see, with the great favor of God revealing himself in Jesus Christ, how it all comes together. In Judaism, it's like the prose without the picture on the front of the box. Uh, it can seem to us kind of obvious. Oh, this is obviously how all the pieces come together. You have a God-man who comes to earth and dies for our sins and rises from the dead. Uh, that is not the most intuitive move to make in reconciling all these prophecies. We're very familiar with it as Christians because we possess the fullness of revelation. But for the Jews, let us remember that it was genuinely difficult. I don't know how well we would fare in the same shoes simply having a whole variety of prophecies, sometimes very perplexing, right? The Messiah is supposed to be great and glorious and rule forever and to be the royal son of David and to be mighty, but at the same time, he's supposed to be humble and he's supposed to be pierced and he's supposed to, uh, if you take a messianic interpretation of the suffering servant prophecies, even be killed and go down into his death. So how do you put those two together? And some Jews thought that there was even two different messiahs. 
a Messiah ben David, the regal one, and a Messiah ben Joseph, who, like the Joseph in the well, would be humiliated at the hands of his brothers and have a very humble and ultimately an end in death. And those would be two different figures. Other people just puzzled over how those things were to be reconciled. Obviously, the other challenge with that is your question was phrased in terms of the Jews. And the other thing I, I encourage people to remember is that there's not just one group of people called the Jews at the time of Christ. Right? Judaism is a diverse phenomenon. So you have Pharisaical Judaism, you have the Sadducees who were doctrinal minimalists and didn't even believe in things like the immaterial soul, and they only took the Pentateuch in a very uh, low-flying, literal understanding of the Pentateuch as their theology. You have the Essenes. Uh, you have people that obviously became part of the Jesus movement that became Christianity. So you have a diversity of Jewish expectations about the Messiah, a diversity of Jewish methods of reading the prophecies, and then you know, when Jesus comes, that gets polarized and further uh, leavened by all these things that the gospel is asserting. So, so one, don't reduce Judaism to just the Jews, and then two, while it can seem obvious to us, remember that we have the picture on the front of the box. As individuals, between now and Christmas, how can we best study the Minor Prophets? One place to begin, I think, is how Holy Mother Church teaches us in the lectionary cycle. You can just flip through, day by day, the lectionary. And one thing, you, or take a missile if you have a missile, and not just like, I know we live in the age of the missalette that's disposable, but if you have a missile that has all the readings for Mass, go to the first week in Advent through to Epiphany or through to Candlemas, the presentation of our Lord, February 2nd, and just look at the readings the church presents there, and then see what they pair in terms of the gospel for the day, and use that as your way into the major loci, the major places in Scripture that are important for our celebration of the Nativity. I think that would be the best way in, because you'll not only get all the classical passages, but you will also be able to pray and celebrate that mystery as you're studying it. You know, that's a nice overlap to be able to do academic study, devotional study, liturgical glory to God, and to weave scripture into your intellectual life, your study, your devotion. That, I think, is the, the pattern for exegesis. Thank you very much, Professor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>